Welcome to Mastering Data, where we sit down with inspirational leaders in data and IT to hear their interesting career journeys and lessons learned. Each episode is packed with valuable insights and tips for those looking to excel in the world of data. So, whether you're just starting out or a seasoned professional, join us and get ready to take your data skills to the next level. Welcome to Master and Data, where we sit down with data leaders to learn about their journey to success. Now, we're very lucky today to have Emma Pudney, who's the CTO at Koala. And because Emma gets a lot of podcast requests, a lot of speaking requests, and turns down the majority of them because she's so busy, as we'll find out in work and life. But I'm super privileged and appreciative that Emma's made the time to come and have a chat. At Koala, she looks after all things digital and data, including internal IT, e-commerce, and user experience, amongst a whole host of other things that I don't have time to run through. And, um, and prior to that, Emma worked at Rackspace for seven years, covering the Asia and Pacific region. And during that time, Emma looked after three different teams of Rackers, as they're called, which I found out when me and Em did a bit of work together previously there. And that covered the cloud, the architecture team, engineering, and professional service as well. Now, Emma's going to be a great guest. She's not your typical CTO, I would say. She's uh, been described by others having a contagious energy. That's a quote that I picked out. And she certainly pulls no punches and has huge professional and personal determination in everything that she does, both at work and home. Further to that, she supports women in tech, which we'll touch upon as well. And before startups were in vogue, Emma even showed her entrepreneurial flair by starting a startup, which we'll also talk about as well. So Emma, welcome. Thanks so much for joining us today. No, my pleasure. And um, I think if we just end it there, uh, <laughs> that rounds me out lovely and we have no opportunity for me to stuff it up. That's going right. Forward. Yeah, like only... everyone just leaves with a beautiful view of Emma Putney and we're good. The only way is down from there, right? <laughs> Pretty that's, much. That's it sounds like it. <laughs> so I would like to start at the very beginning of your career history and even prior to that, because I noticed during my research that you've always had flair, even from when you were at school. So there's a little story about you being eight years of age in the school playground, making scrunchies and selling them to your friends at school. Would you say <laughs> that has always been a trait that's followed you through? And do you remember that time? And how did that come about? Yeah, well, I think actually that wasn't my first, my first opportunity for making money. It was during the school holidays. My mom used to work in a fabric shop and next door there was a cafe. And to get rid of me, she'd send me to the cafe and I peeled potatoes for what felt like an entire day. So about eight <laughs> hours and I earned $5 and I was so excited. <laughs> I then used my $5 to invest in some fabric, which my mom being a sewer, I used to, yes, create hypercolor scrunchies, sequin scrunchies, which is really kind of ironic because it's a very sort of feminine hair type thing. And as we we're saying for this podcast, even... I didn't even wash my hair. I just put it up in a pony and <laughs> off we go. So, but yeah, no, that's that's uh, two dollars, three dollars for the fancy ones. Great, so, and um, and yeah, and it's great. And would you say that that entrepreneurial flair has kind of carried you through on your career all the way through to date? Ah, uh, absolutely. I come up with. My brain is on overtime all the time, <laughs> thinking up different ideas. It's 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 almost like a pastime or a hobby. I love, and you know, the number of business models I build, and like the scrunchy model, geez, that was going. That actually moved into toy clowns. Oh like, wow! Yeah, it just it it a niche market. <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> my mom still has one on the you know in the old bedroom back at home. One of the clowns that I made, but yeah, I've always had a brain that wants to take an idea and do something with it, and 
and it's difficult to always make those turn into things, but uh, it's good fun thinking about them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I I'm, I'm so <laughs> successful inside my own brain, <laughs> like the ideas I've created. And I definitely I definitely see that the ideas and that flair definitely follows you through since I met you a couple of years ago. That's always been true. And that's why I think, again, you're not a stereotypical CTO. You're not a stereotypical kind of corporate person at the C-level suite, right? And I think that's what makes you different and unique. And I think we'll touch upon some of those aspects as we as we go through this chat. Just coming back to your education though. So you left school and you went to the University of Adelaide to study IT. So by that point in time, had you made a conscious decision to move into the world of IT and tech? There's a little gap. I left school. I went and studied in Japan for nine months. And then I came back and it was kind of like, it's a bit strange, but in high school, all the smart kids were doing medicine. It was like the thing that you did. And back then, yeah. 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 And I was kind of like, oh, I don't want to do medicine. Blood is icky. Uh, <laughs> Under seven years of study. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so I was like, well, I like physics and maths and all those sorts of things. And my stepdad was actually in IT and he said, well, you could consider IT. And a lot of people kind of looked down their noses at that stage because it wasn't scores, a sexy, it, it cool was thing, was it? not. And it was, you didn't even need good scores to get into IT. <laughs> They'll take anybody. <laughs> They'll take anyone. Um, but yeah, that's, that's the direction I took. And then whilst at uni, I was working night shifts at a data center, which actually turned into being sort of my first part of my career, the first chunk, stage one of, of my career. But what I found back then, can't speak to Adelaide Uni now, but back then a lot of the stuff they were teaching was pretty out of date. Like the core programming language was ADA. And if this, if the people in this podcast who listen to it are kind of tech, they <laughs> still may not even know what <laughs> You'll ADA get a prize is. If you are, if you're that's right it, in. <laughs> right? Um, and Fordran. And it was fascinating, but not particularly practical. So that's sort of where I ended up doing the transition. I was working Friday and Saturday night, 12 hour night shifts as a data center operator, teaching myself to script and code a little bit here and there. Oh, so hands on. Yeah, I got the nickname yeah. Pearl Girl while I was doing <laughs> while I was there. So it was, it was pretty it was pretty good. And like, yeah, you, I mean, I also um, woke up a couple of times in the middle of the night during your night shift because I'd fallen asleep and my forehead was on the space key on the keyboard and the buffer filled up. It's like an automatic alarm to wake yeah, you yeah. up. But yeah, so, yes. But so I, what I ended up doing was, I think I did about three and a bit years of the degree, but I was offered full time at a rate that was higher than yeah. most graduates and uh, was really relevant work as well. So I ended up, that's how I kind of got in and um, into IT. But the way I got that job to start off with was I was actually working downstairs in the internet cafe, helping people with their browsers and doing Safari stuff. Oh, right. Stuff. Okay. So and you like segued into it from yeah. that. Uh, well, it was kind of interesting, well, not interesting, kind of sad uh, because I was watching all these young men and, you know, you got to appreciate it. I was like 17, 18 at, the t 18 at the time, all these young men going upstairs. I'm like, what are they doing? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. What's, what's going on up <laughs> and there? And there's no dating apps back then either, <laughs> yeah, right? Exactly. It's, Can't stalk anyone. the real anyone. world. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. So I worked out what they were doing. They were working in a data center and I begged my way in to do some free trials and whatever and eventually right. they went, all right, that's you can great. do a night shift. <laughs> <laughs> that's how my career started in IT. So the persistence paid off again, did, right? So that's good. Now, so so you mentioned there, like, you know, university and the way the style of teaching at that time kind of put you off. Now, this came up in another episode that we did just last week. And they said that, again, it wasn't kind of what they thought university would be in terms of studying computing, and it kind of put them off. Has it changed, do you think, and does that kind of method and style of teaching still exist and put off potential candidates? 
mainly females, I'm thinking as well. Do you think it's more inclusive now? Have you had any exposure to that recently? I'm going to be honest and say I haven't had a hell of a lot of exposure. What I can say is they switched like from Ada to Java as the primary language like a couple of years after I left. So at least the technology maybe got a little bit more relevant from that perspective. There were only about like, I'm older, right? So we're talking about 25 years ago. Mm -hmm. I, there were probably only about five or six of us females yeah in the minority on the, yeah absolutely in terms of actually doing because it was it and t engineering doing that course so i think you know i'd always been a little bit of a tomboy and so being surrounded by men had not like that didn't impact me at yeah, all yeah. but i can certainly imagine like you know if i think of my daughter who's 11 ooh boys like you know if she was in an environment where it was all like if I said, here's three different classes you can do yeah, and you'll be only that. three girls in that class, <laughs> yeah. no matter what it is, she yeah. wouldn't want to do it. Yeah. So I think from a number of people involved, like, sorry, in terms of gender breakout, I think so. But in terms of the teaching, I can't comment to yeah. be honest. I don't know much yeah. about how they're structuring courses these days. Can we talk about your grandmother? We can talk about my grandmother. <laughs> <laughs> can we talk about what role she played in terms of influencing in terms of your career path generally and the role that she's played throughout your life? Because you mentioned just before this that she's still, she's still around and with us, right? Yeah, yeah. My grandma is almost 90 and um, actually I think it's her birthday next week. Happy and birthday, grandma. <laughs> happy birthday, grandma. <laughs> um, and well, she's, she's a massive role model for me over my life. So to give you some idea about her, she was one of only two women studying physics at Adelaide Uni. Back wow, in back, the, back I'm, then. I'm going to say 30s, 40s. Like we a talked long about minorities before. This is like a micro minority. Exactly. And she wanted to become a physicist. But when she finished university, it was time of war. Her dad was a teacher. Her dad said, You need a solid job, stable job. Teaching is a stable job. So she became a, a teacher. And I mean, she did brilliant. She's worked in regional South Australia. She was headmistress of the school there. She used to, on my school holidays, we'd go down to the farm and we'd dissect plants and we'd do like little maths quizzes and logic problems. And I thought this was like just the most fun you could have on your school holidays. Yeah. We'd go outside. I wanted to be an astronomer. We'd look at the stars and she'd explain how they're built. And all of that was, I think, if you want to look at what influenced me the most to want to head down science or STEM, in the first case, that was my grandma and her influence Amazing. over me. And then technology just became more and more relevant as, you know, the, the, it connects up with the story. But, yeah, she's an amazing influence over my life. And I always sort of sit there and feel, hell, what could she have done with her life if... If she was born later. Yeah, or if she just wasn't told, hey, you know, yeah, if she didn't stable job. If she didn't listen to her dad who said you must become a teacher versus her own aspirations to become a scientist. And so one of my aspirations is to, you know, pay that back in terms of not only my own daughter but others and get, make sure that they realize that, hey, you can do this sort yeah. of shit, you know, just because we're women doesn't mean that we're a minority in the tech space doesn't mean that that has to be the way it continues yeah. to be. And Almost like paying, paying it forward, right? If that's what I meant rather than paying yeah, it Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, but, it, but it's it good, forward. right? And it's great. And it's great to hear about that experience, right? And so holidays, it sounds idyllic, right? It sounds yeah, amazing. That's pretty cool. You mentioned stage one of your career before. How many stages in your career and high level, what did it entail? Because we're probably going to break them down over the next few minutes. Yeah. So I'm in stage four now okay. of my career. So there's four at the moment. Yeah. We're at stage, Koala was the beginning of stage four. Stage one was that data center piece. So the very beginning of my career, which was from night shifts ranged through a number of different roles while I was at a company called Hostworks. And there's some pretty cool tech kind of stories that relate into there. And that was about 10 years 
then co-founded a startup called Virtual Arc where, and that was, you know, doing managed services on cloud back then before cloud, like before Amazon was even in Australia, like some massive learnings that went into that part of life. Then there was the Rackspace era, which was around seven years. And that had some, I learned about corporate and big organizations and what politics means and how to influence and evangelize while I was there. And And is that stage three? That's stage three. Okay, I'm keeping up. And then stage four, yep. (laughs) That's where we are today. Counting is where we are today. (laughs) So going back to to the host work piece and the virtual arc, right? So stage one and stage two, because I think that's quite interesting making those initial kind of steps up in your career and you know things are getting more serious a bit more professional certainly when you get into virtual arc and we start with that you know the entrepreneurial spirit again shining through right we've now gone into a startup and five years of that you mentioned before aws is even a concept in the cloud here in australia how did that come about and how did that Go and what were the learning experiences and the kind of stories you want to share with us from there? So how long is the podcast? (laughs) (laughs) I can summarize. I can summarize. (laughs) So it came about because, so I worked with the founder of Hostworks, which was stage one for like 17 years. So I'd worked with him the whole time that I was at Hostworks. And when that was acquired, he went off and he was looking at different things to be the next founding thing. And so at that time when he left, we were in discussions. We agreed, yeah, let's let's start up. And I was the CTO of Virtual Arc. And we kind of went, hey, this cloud thing, we think it's going to be a thing. And, and we, what year was this, Emma? Sorry. This was 2009. Right, okay. So yeah. Okay. yeah. Pretty, pretty early to horse then, right? Yeah, yes. Yeah. So this is back in June. So I think we founded in June or July 2009. Right, okay. And so we're going, yep, yeah, it's going to be a thing. The, the challenge, and we thought, oh, we'll build what we did before, which was managed services, but we're going to build it on top of public cloud. We're going to do this new thing. It's going to wow. be amazing. Hugely forward thinking at the time. When you Too look at where we are today. forward thinking. And that's where before a lot of it's the, time. Yeah. It's because what ended up happening is we just burned through cash, educating customers on what the hell cloud was. Because no one really knew. It was still in that adoption yeah. curve. It was still, people didn't know how to leverage the technology. There was a lot of fear, security, like even today, security is still a thing. But like back then it was. And so we spent a lot of time trying to convince customers it's okay. This is how we do it. And the technologies to, even to support it were quite new. So we had to do a bit of a pivot. So the first thing was like first learning from that was entering a space to try and do a managed service when the market isn't educated. You just didn't even know what the concept it doesn't, was. It I doesn't, guess. yeah, that doesn't work. So we had to pivot and we pivoted to consulting. And then it was so we worked with Coles and helped them build out their cloud transformation strategy and build out their cloud capabilities and framework. And as a little tiny startup, you know, we won one of their partner awards against oh, wow. Accenture at their Coles have their own partner yeah. awards, Shindig. And we did that. I met another massive influencer in my sort of tech career, which was someone called Debbie Browning. She headed up the infrastructure team. So she was in charge of all the cloud stuff at at Coles. And she was, you know, she wasn't what I thought a tech leader should be. And after working with her for a while, I had to check myself and go, you know, you've got some learning to do, Emma Pudney, because she's an amazing leader just because she wasn't as technical mm-hmm. as 
like my background, yeah. I thought, how can you possibly be but a technology leader? Yeah, she absolutely understood the concept. She understood how to motivate teams. She understood how to build a strategy and execute upon that. And she understood all the concepts just because, you know, it, me and my judgmental self back then went, oh, but she can't get on the tools and do the thing. It showed a bit yeah, of immaturity yeah. in terms see, of yeah, my leadership yeah. style and so forth. But she was a phenomenal leader and I learned a hell of a lot from her and, and we're still very much in contact. Oh, good. So she's still, she's still around. Yeah, still she's going, CTO the... of Workwear Group. Oh, right. Okay. If you could boil it down into like the three kind of aspects that she kind of showed characteristics or traits, let's say from a leadership perspective, that you really put and place value on that you then kind of put in your toolkit and kind of took with you to the next phase of your career. Could you summarize those in three kind of distinct areas? So I think she showed me. So I've always been a pretty high energy person. I think I can she, imagine. <laughs> yes, I don't drink coffee either. Like imagine me on tapping. No, so she was a high energy person as well, but she worked out how to translate that into motivating people and using that to motivate her team. So that was one thing I learned from her was like rather than necessarily dry using it to drive and push she used it like to a influence. dictatorship you. yeah she used it to influence and inspire and i sort of i took that she also was my first introduction well, not my first introduction but first introduction in that context of working within a bigger corporate and how to influence up sideways and how to she taught me about enterprise and how to consider like you know sure the best technical solution is this but we can't do that. Yeah. <laughs> or, yeah. you know, a big one that she taught that I learned from her is we almost lost the the opportunity altogether because we were pitching way to blue sky, way to the, the, the leap from where they were today to, to where, where we to could to. envisage the cloud at Coles getting to was just such a big leap that we hadn't taken them on the journey. Debbie, she got it. Everybody else. You needed yeah. all the stakeholders yeah. to, to grok it. Because it's like turning a cruise ship round, right? Exactly, it's like exactly. So she sort of taught me the importance of understanding who your key stakeholders are and how to build, take people on the journey with you to get to a, a Hugely important. Outcome. Oh, massive. As I'm sure important. that you recognized as your career went on, right? That yeah. Those are the skills that are rare, hard, hard to learn, <laughs> right? But I think the ability to recognize that in somebody else and take it with who's obviously put you in good stead. She sounds like a great guest to have. <laughs> we'll have to add <laughs> yeah, it to, no, the, she's, she's to, the, to the list as well. So then we move into stage three, I think, to Rackspace yep. after that point, right? So seven years at Rackspace then, accumulating and looking after a range of different teams I mentioned at the top. How did you find your experience at Rackspace? Because it's a very different beast going from that startup mentality world. What was the pivotal point of why you decided to move on from five years? into Rackspace, how did you find that cultural shift and how did you adapt into that world? All right, lots of questions there. Yeah. Let's see if we can break those down. So first of all, wh why why did I leave Virtual Arc? Well, one of the things I didn't cover was obviously we burnt through a lot of cash and so forth in the first stages and we, did, we pivoted to consulting, which was working, but it was incredibly stressful. You know, you're bootstrapped, you're wondering how you're going to make at the time, payroll and all those sorts of things. Day in, day out, right? It's yeah. not just every now and again, it's e constant. Exactly. Always there. And I had, as I mentioned, the CEO and co-founder of the first business that I worked with, we co-founded that together. So we'd been working together, I think, over 17 years wow. by that, yeah. that stage as well. And he'd always been either my boss or co-founder. And I, so there were two things for me. I was a little bit of a, hey, could I still be successful if I wasn't <laughs> yeah. under his yeah. his wing kind of thing? Yeah. Could I get out there and and and, and do it on your be own? Be able to do this on my own. And the second one was this: this just the stress levels of 
I'm not like I've learned this about myself repeatedly is that when it comes to like holding accountability for like a target or numbers and the stress associated with that, that doesn't work with my personality style. I'm a go execute things. I'm a go create strategies, but you start trying to say, focus on these numbers and just make sure you hit each individual one. And if that's a big function of my role, it tears me down and I don't get any. It's not a motivator yeah, for you. Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't. So then I went, all right. And I actually was only just applying for Rackspace was just a test. I was just like, I'd never done an interview before. All the other oh, ones, wow, I'd okay. pretty much just begged my way in yeah. or co-founded. So I'd yeah. never done an interview and I thought I might be a bit shit at interviews, so I better check how I how I go in this. So I just there was an ad for a CTO of a cloud company and I went, oh, that looks like a good practice. That's what I am today. Let's try that. Yeah, subsequently the, the role changed. <laughs> so you must have been quite good at interviews then. <laughs> turns out I'm okay at interviews, um, at least back then I was. So it wasn't that strategic then, I guess. So so that, that move was, that kind of fitted the bill. Let's just give it a I go to get some experience. And then I found out that the ad was for Rackspace. I'd heard about the amazing culture that Rackspace has. And so that was a real motivator to, and then the, another, so like each of these stages kind of has a, a, an influencer, like my childhood as my mm. grandmother, who was an influencer, she got me into STEM. Then Marty, who's the CEO I keep talking about, he was the influencer who grew my initial career and we co-founded together. Debbie was then the influencer during the Coles period. And then we enter the Rackspace era where a guy called Angus Dorney is um, my main influencer and he is my boss and he's probably one of the, if not the best leader I've ever worked for. I learned a lot from him about leadership, which we can go into. But basically, when I did the interview at Rackspace, one, it was Rackspace. I was like, oh, this is pretty good. I, you know, I love the concept. Back then, they were like an open stack. Like we had the second largest public cloud next to Amazon back in yeah. that, that time. So it was pretty interesting. And then I met him and I was like, wow, you're a really interesting person okay. to want to so work So he impressed for. you immediately then as soon as you met him in the yeah. interview? And he's a naturally just kind of like Angus. Like, people kind of gravitate towards Yeah, he's, he's got that sort of pull to him as well. And I learned like one of the biggest leadership things that I learned from him was about like I'd always been someone who'd been considered a really strong leader, like I get shit done. Like if it needs to happen and it's a critical project, you give it to Emma and she'll make it make happen. happen yeah. You know, that that was sort of my reputation. But it was also people also went, well, if you work for Emma, you're going to work hard because, you know, like you, you're going to succeed, but it's not necessarily going to be the most enjoyable <laughs> yeah. experience that you've ever paced. had. Yeah. It's going to be fast paced. It's going to be tough. It's going to be, she's going to push you. Yeah. And what I learned from Angus was that you can actually achieve the same output or same outcomes but have a different experience with the people that you lead just by changing the way that you you lead so in my mind it had been very black and white the only way i can get the success is if i push 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 whereas he was like hey you can say can you please do this it'd be really helpful and here's the context and it and they go off and they do it and they're inspired or you can say get this shit done hurry up why have you done it yet and they still get the stuff done but their impression of you and it's their motivation at the end is very different yeah. and so I learned about that and how to you know I certainly haven't perfected it if you well, ask my team say, today you, you say you say <laughs> just change that style of leadership right but it's not it's a huge especially if your success to that date had been built upon a certain approach a certain method of execution if you like to go almost to a different paradigm and say, oh, now you can just encourage people by saying, oh, can you just 
do this, please do that politely, you know, and explain the context. It's not necessarily just polite. It's also about giving them context and motivation and take them on the journey. But yes, it's a different But I guess it's a, it's a shift in an, and then you've got to put yourself out there. And it's not an overnight thing, I guess, is, no. is what I'm saying. You know, you've got to try to, to adapt that thing that comes naturally to you, the thing that you've built your success to that point in your career on. How did that go for you? And I guess that's a still, still kind of transitioning. Yeah. Yeah, you never finish leadership. Like you, every year you look back and go, geez, I could have been a better leader last year and here a hope of things I could grow from and all these sorts of things. But there were a few things that contributed to it. So having Angus as a role model helped me sort of see how that could actually be done. We would do racker pulses, which were annual feedback on not just you as a leader, but like the Your business and, yeah, and, and all yeah. that sort of thing. And I was expecting, again, in my sort of more black and white mindset, hey, my team's going to give me pretty good scores. And I did get reasonable scores, but when we all got together and gave some feedback, someone um, put their hand up, one of my leaders put their hand up and says, hey, Emma, like – you don't even say hello when you come into the office in the morning. <laughs> you are like so deadline focused. You get to your desk, you work, you work, yeah. you work. But like, it's not because you're being rude, right? It's no. just because you, you've you got out the car, whatever you've got. I need to do, you've got 10 things to do. Yeah. I'm just going to get out and do them. And so I realized that, you know, like I wasn't building those relationships with the team and, and that sort of thing. So that was another one of the things that, that sort of kicked me in there, gave me a kick up the butt. And so, you know, then we turned it into a bit of a joke. Like, I don't know how many of your audience watch Monty <laughs> Python, but we do the morning, morning. <laughs> Morning from the fish and meaning of yeah, life. Which makes it and a bit so, easier. A yeah, bit more like just fun, trying to make yeah, it, hey, yeah. look, I'm taking yeah. the piss out of myself. I appreciate that that wasn't something that I was strong at as a leader. And so, and, you know, then there was feedback from, say, the sales team that they would, um, they were scared of me because of my sort of, you know, I'd make them qualify the crap out of things. But again, it was my style. Yeah. We're, all, we're essentially talking about style yeah. and changing style is hard. I've tried to coach people about changing style and we've had success. And then there are some people who are just not willing and they generally leave because they're yeah. just not happy to hear yeah. that their style has yeah. an influence on I mean, it, so it's hard it takes it, years and i'm still on the journey it does but i think you're in the right mindset for that because as a leader yourself you're super self-aware is one of the observations that i've made about about yourself right you know how you're perceived right and you're talking about it now at that point in time you knew you were perceived as like a taskmaster making people work hard, but with the right kind of goals in mind. You weren't just doing it to be nasty. You no. were doing it because you wanted to get a goal done and that was the way that you knew how to do it, right? But to have that self-awareness as a leader and put yourself out there in the way that you do very transparently, very directly, is a rare trait again, right? And I think that's what puts people on the back foot a bit because like, oh, this, this person has no hang-ups. They're just happy to talk about who they are in the real world. And it's the same whether you meet you outside the office, inside the office, at home. It's the same person, right? And I don't see that trait as commonly as I would like as probably in, in, in leadership roles, you know, and those people I come across. So I think having that self-awareness is probably crucial because then you can go, oh, that, that probably is a weakness. I probably need to take that on the journey with me and kind of try to certainly plug those gaps, right? Do you work on that externally in terms of thinking, I need to constantly evaluate and critique myself and speak to others and get feedback. 100%. Like it's not, and, and I'll just call it out there, it's not fun. Like it's it's rewarding, but it's it's, it's not painful. fun. It's, <laughs> like it's scary. Like it takes courage to sit in front of a room and go, all right, I've stuffed up or to look at, like I remember I was looking at a situation at Koala where I was having 
some negativity with a, with another leader, not like out in the open, just my own feelings about this other leader. And I had to sit there and do some real reflection and go, what is it that makes me get so pissed off with the way this leader is behaving? Unpick these layers and you can see some ugly stuff. And what I boiled it down to was I'd moved industries. In my industry, I'd been in there 20 plus years. I'd done some pretty cool shit, had lots of industry recognition. I was used to being a bit of a star. And then I moved across to Koala where, yeah, I'm bringing some very unique and experiences and some le- different styles of leadership and all these sorts of things. But I wasn't the star yeah. anymore. I'm not an e-commerce guru. Like back I'm in the trenches it. having I'm to- trying to learn. And what I realized was this person's style was irritating me more because everyone thought this person was so good and was a little <laughs> bit of the shiny star. And I was jealous. That's where my negativity was coming from. So you have to like that to be That takes a lot of soul searching to work out. And it's not nice when you realize that's an ugly emotion mm. and that's where that's coming from. So it's not nice. And then admitting it, not only to yourself, mm. but being then having the courage to sort of go, hey, look. Well, that's the next level completely. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. And, and I've done things, we we're talking before about my evolution of and everything. What does happen? And I can't remember which personality framework thing it comes from yeah Yeah, one of those things but basically when you're under pressure you go back to old traits so i still find that when i get under pressure now or over the last few years or whatever i go back to that like impatient get shit done kind of leader and sometimes i need a bit of a slap in the face in the in the form of feedback from my team to say hey pushing too fast so at the moment for example we've done some amazing things at koala we've increased our velocity considerably and it's like so exciting but maybe we've pushed it to the limit and the team was getting to the breaking point and then i was asking for just a little bit more and it was just someone said like i just don't know how we can squeeze this in and I went home and I thought, went, right, we're having a breath sprint. Yeah. Right? And we're planned. Next sprint is actually a breath sprint where everybody can just kind of go, all right, let's finish off the things. Let's take on all these little bit of extras and just calm the farm before moving on. And so seeking feedback, I'm very lucky to have some people who are my leaders are pretty open about giving me feedback. And but you're I try pretty to, receptive. I'm very <laughs> at the receptive. Same time. Yeah. Like the key to taking feedback is to remember that feedback is a gift. It's not a criticism. It's a gift. It's an opportunity for you to learn. And it's not an opportunity for you to get defensive and explain all the reasons that you disagree with it, because that just means you're shutting out the opportunity to learn. You've got to take the feedback. And it's a bit like food. You take the feedback. You take out the nutrients. Anybody takes the nutrients out of food. You take the bits that are good for you that can help you grow. And then the rest is just shit. <laughs> it just gets, I like it. That's a know, nice analogy to it's remember. So, so like, you know, it's it's just like food. There's, there's, there's nutrients in some feedbacks, good quality feedback, and you yeah. can take a lot of nutrients out of it and other feedback. You know what? Maybe there's not so much, but it's still interesting to, to, to have it. And yeah. Take it. So just touching back on Rackspace quickly. So you got in there. Angus, obviously a great mentor and, and was able to give you a good example of what a different style of leadership looks like in a positive way and still get good exceptional results, I guess. Yep. During the time you were at Rackspace, the global pandemic hit, right? It affected all industries. Prior to that, I think you were probably doing a lot of traveling, right? Because APAC and, you know, you're looking after that region. You've got a lot of responsibilities. Headquartered in the US, lots of trips to the US. So how did your life look then? And, you know, we talked earlier, you've got a young family, a daughter and a, and a little boy, and you're traveling, your husband's busy doing his adventures and his work career side of things as well. So you must have been traveling quite a a large proportion of the time pre-COVID. So how did that look pre and post-COVID in terms of that work-life balance for you? And and was it a positive thing? 
post-COVID to, to have that shift? Yeah, I think so. I mean, the travel, I always, as a mother, <laughs> I loved the travel because I could escape. You could have a proper sleep, an unbroken yes. night's Do you know, rest. Like just even a flight for 12 hours to myself for just <laughs> Luxury, me. Luxury. Yeah. What are you, like, whoa. <laughs> so I do, I actually, you know, obviously I love coming back to my family because of course. I love my family. <laughs> but it was, it, I, I actually did enjoy the travel for a range of reasons for that. I think Work-life balance actually doesn't have as much to do with your external environment as it does your internal mindset. So I always say to myself, like, I'm always working on my work-life balance, but I could quit and become a, I don't know, pick an, a waitress or a, a job that doesn't have quite so many responsibilities and I'd still get myself worked up and stressed. So I think a lot of it is to do with how your perception, internal yeah. perception of yeah. the world, like, you need to sort of seek the calm within before you can. Mm. And so there were lots of things. I remember traveling pregnant, collapsing on an airplane, being rushed to hospital in the US. Wow. The best part of that experience was I had to overnight and the hotel I stayed at, I went, stuff it. I'm going all out. And I ordered myself the biggest piece of carrot cake with all this layers <laughs> of frosting. And it was amazing. It must have been memorable. That's what I remember yeah, about that, that whole experience, <laughs> not the having to then fly on to Japan and have bruised knees and all this oh, sort of wow. stuff. So like, I think it's your personality that drives that sort of thing. It's just as easy if you're working from home to end up working, you know, 12 hour Around days clock, or yeah. whatever it is. So I think it's, it's, it's really important regardless of your environment to stick the boundaries in that you need. Like one of the things I do, I'm very lucky at home. I have a, an office, which means that I have a physical separation between my at-home work and being Emma Pudney, the mum, wife yeah. and family member. You know, when I leave that office, I close the door. The laptop doesn't come out. I don't sit on the couch doing work at night or anything like that. It becomes also a um, psychological boundary barrier yeah. like yeah exactly yeah. and i think that there are other things that i protect like the 7 a.m to 7 30 8 a.m in the morning i protect that because that's when the kids are getting up yeah. and we can hang out hang out equals make their breakfast change their clothes <laughs> get them to, yeah, all yeah, of those yeah. things but it's hanging out yeah, yeah. it's quality it's time. perception right like you're saying yeah it's, all it's the good same fun. the 6 p.m to 7 p.m yeah. same sort of deal like i protect that time because that's the important time yeah and it's sacred right um, that's all you, exactly. know, you need to have those. And so I think balance is also around quality, not quantity. So I'm very, when I have my, um, so I work a flexible work week. So I work compressed hours. So I don't work on Mondays. And I've been like that since I had my daughter. And I'm very deliberate about, yeah, maybe I don't spend as much time with my kids as other parents may have the opportunity to do so. But when I do, I do stuff that is, Quality time, quality time yeah. and means stuff to both of us yeah. kind of kind of thing. Yeah. So it, it, there's a lot of things that I use to try and protect that work-life integration slash balance, whatever the hip word is right now to use for that. And I think there's a lot of – the biggest thing I think as a parent or mum is you have the guilt factor. I was going to ask you about the guilt. Yeah. The G word. <laughs> yeah, the G word. That's the, that's the, the biggest one. Like, because you sit there and I remember there I am as my, my working mum and there was another woman, a, a friend, one of Alia's, that's my daughter's friend's mum, and she's like she had three kids in the time that I'd had one and she was pregnant with her fourth and she's picking them up from school and going to take them to the beach and then on the weekend they were going to go to the zoo and I'm like thinking, oh, my God, I'm so tired. I can't possibly think of doing any of those things. I'm yeah. such an awful mother. I don't do all these wonderful things for my children. and 
you know, this is a general rule of life is like whenever you compare yourself to someone else, you're never going to be happy with what you're doing or what you've got or you're going to consider yourself less. So instead it's like I then went, no, no, no. The time I spend with my daughter or the time I spend with my son is good quality time and how much of it I spend isn't whether or not I'm a good mum. It's what I do with the time I do have. Absolutely. And so that's how I play with the guilt piece is I just remind myself that, I'm actually a good mum, even if, like I've learned that it's okay to have, I am good, I'm a great CTO, even if sometimes I'm a little bit like impatient. I'm a great mum, even if, like it's allowed to, everyone sort of puts the, you can only be great at something if you're 100%, if you've got all the things right. Whereas, you know, it's totally okay to tag on the, even if I snap at my kids every now and then, I'm still a good mum. Well, and nobody's perfect in any any role, whether that be um, a mother, a father, a CTO, you know, you're going to make mistakes because that's part of being human. But I also think that, like, I get a lot of time with my kids because I work from, you know, in contrast quite a lot. But then I'll be more distracted because it's almost more, I take it for granted, right? So I'll take it for granted because I haven't so many, so many hours <laughs> with my children. I'll just happen to be on my phone, not fully engaged, right? Where I think that there's no right or wrong reason to do it. And you've got to try to make the best thing that works for you and your lifestyle. So I think having, short amounts of time where you're fully engaged, that's probably more valuable in many respects, right? Well, again, I think it's also not as black and white. There's no right and wrong. Well, there's no there's textbook, no, is there? Yeah, exactly, the exactly. It's like, are you achieving what you want to achieve at work? Are you getting, or at least, you know, what you feel you should be yeah. achieving? And are you being a good parent to your kids? Like, And, and it's not about happy, what anyone else thinks. It's, it's about what you It's not comparing to yeah. anyone at all. Like, it's your little ecosystem and your little, your standards by yeah. which you. Okay. Stage four, Stage four. <laughs> right? Yep. So whereas when you got into Rackspace, it was pretty tactical, right? You saw the role, you kind of bought a ticket to the lottery, won the lottery on the first attempt and got, and got in there, right? But then when you left Rackspace, you had a little bit of time out to kind of take a step back, reflect on what you wanted. Again, we've talked about this kind of self-reflection, yep. looking at kind of your skills, weaknesses, areas that you want to build upon. And, you know, I understand that when you went out on this kind of mission to find what stage four looked like for you, you kind of listed out your values in terms of what you're looking for, listed out what kind of role that you wanted to do, what appeals to you, what are those motivators for for Emma Pudney. I know you do quite a lot of work in that space, right? But top line, what did that look like for you? How did you kind of approach that as a strategy to kind of find what stage four looked for you? Yeah. So if you look at transitioning from stage two to stage three versus stage three to stage four. Stage two to stage three was motivated by, can I do this? Can I make it on my own? Stage three to four was, I can make it on my own. And now I am (laughs) actually have the luxury of being able to be a little bit selective. And so I was like, I'm not going to move and leave a great organization for something that's just more money or more seniority or whatever it might be. So I was, I did a lot of reflection and worked out, you know, what are the things that really matter to me so that the next move that I can make is more strategic in terms of me being happy as a human and me getting what I want out of my career. And being fulfilled and motivated, yeah. 
I actually, again, back to, you know, how we spoke about I'm just me, wherever it is. And that's the same as me in an interview. Like you can sometimes feel like you want to put something on and to try and make yourself, but I'm just me because I figure like any relationship, they're going to find out eventually what kind of human I am. So if I'm not a bit weird and quirky in the interview, they're going to be a bit shocked. Yeah, let it crazy out earlier on. Yeah, you've got to see the craziness (laughs) at the beginning. Otherwise, just eyes wide open know what you're getting into. So what I actually did was kind of created the like, Uh, this document which covered as you said sort of what am I looking for in an organization you know I'm looking for an organization some of the key things from experience were like strategic thinking interested in about more than just making a profit sure every business has to but like more of doing good sustainability you know what does a technology obviously like that was the top of the list then there was okay what do I want the role to look like and that was actually the most complex because I'm a bit of a I've done so many different things like I have the title of CTO, but I have functions which don't normally fall in CTO and have done weird and wonderful things in like, so the role was actually the most complex. And then culture, culture is really important to me. Like I read some, you know, you get tapped on the shoulder all the time and some big ass organization wanted to have a chat with me and like they sent me through the JD and I'm reading through it and at the very small font at the very bottom was you know, we're interested in culture. I'm like, <laughs> that's, <laughs> no, HR's, it's, 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 that's HR's input. Yeah, exactly. It's the wrong way around. So I did that. And then what I used it is I used it as a um, qualification device. So whenever I went into a conversation with someone around a role, I went, well, this sounds like we could have something going here. Yeah, this is me. And this <laughs> so is this is not- what I find amazing. You, you hand them the, or email them or whatever, the document itself. Yeah. And, and so, it's raw. And it's completely transparent then, right? Because it's like, this is me. This is what I'm looking for. Yeah. How, how was that received um, generally? Did people kind of respond Loved well to that? It. Which is, was like for me, I didn't do it because I thought that I was setting a new approach or standard. I was doing it because hell, I know what I want. And you didn't and want to waste any time probably. I don't want to waste, exactly. I don't want to waste your time. Mm. It's your time. I, the number of times I've interviewed people who aren't right for roles because what I had isn't what they're looking for. And so it was like, here, let's not waste each other's time. Let's check this out. And as I said, it was just a very plain doc. This <laughs> is like headings was I bolded the heading of each section and that was the extent to how pretty there's no pictures there's no pretty fonts there's yeah. no nothing it's just bleh, this is yeah. what written white. in my style in the way I speak not like a resume which is there people really liked it it actually had an interesting effect because a lot of top consulting firms who we were chatting and they loved it and I'm sitting there going but everything I'm saying here like what I've learned about your it doesn't necessarily align with your organization <laughs> yeah. but they're like what I found was organizations who don't have that sort of authenticity and whatever as their or that style as their key like I had government organizations as well really wanting me like really keen for me to join because they they're trying to transform you can bring something they, they want, haven't got exactly but on the flip they don't side, have what I want <laughs> that's it on the flip side yeah they, they wanted the energy so easy the, to discount those ones it's easy for me to discount which is a, a little bit sad I guess and discriminatory because yeah. I mean, maybe I could have a massive influence but I might also die a little in the process so <laughs> and it was about this process was a, selfishly so, yeah. about me and it has to be right to yeah. a degree you know so did that process work on reflection do you think and would you do it again if you're looking for another role or would you recommend to other people? 100%. 100%. In terms of seeking, finding what you want, because like sometimes you can kind of convince yourself because things sh- sound shiny and wonderful. Like some of the money that was getting thrown around in some of these senior exec roles, if I 
didn't go back to my compass. I used it like a compass, like my moral, yeah, my ethics or whatever to back to it and kept myself honest because, yeah. it, you know, even I could feel, even with the level of self-awareness I was trying to apply to the process, when people are trying to buddy you up and make you feel wonderful and think about all these you get amazing caught up in things, it. you can know, <laughs> yeah. oh, and then yeah, you go, yeah. oh, hang on, no, 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 ask about this, <laughs> ask about that. No, 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 it's not. And so I think it, I think it helped me find what I was looking for. So 100%, I'd use it again. Great. Um, yeah. Women in tech. Yeah. This is where I want to kind of round out our conversation. So everything I know about you, everything I've read, this is, a again, a common theme, a common thread that comes to the top nearly every time. The support you provide to women in tech, women getting into STEM roles. What do you do in that space? What change or differences have you been able to make? Where do you think it's going? Is it getting better? Yeah. <laughs> is it improving? So the first answer is not enough. Like it's one of those things that I wish I could be doing so much more, like life as a mother, as a senior exec, all the excuses, but I wish I could be doing more. The sorts of things that I have done is like need to get back into it, but I did a lot of posting on LinkedIn around how to manage some of those complexities of being it started off with being a mother, but I found a lot of fathers as well were empathizing with the situation saying, hey, us too, we feel these things, we just don't say it. <laughs> um, so I think managing that sort of in senior positions, but also tech and being a mother was a big thing that I did a lot of posting and whatever about. I have also done like, I did an article on LinkedIn about this, but I did a lot on the actual how to go through the talent acquisition process and the number of things that we do in the space, which unintentionally is a little bit discriminatory and how to try and open that up. And a lot of my network put a lot of feet input into that as well. Things like I'm currently hiring for a solutions architect and I gave the direction of, okay, I want at least 50% female candidates, go out and find them. They're, they're out there somewhere. Like, let's go out and find them. And, you know, likewise, go through my network, use my reach to try and, yep. and do that. I think that you can't, as a leader, just go, I want more women in my team or more gender, whatever the, your, your diversity goal is. I want more gender equality is the wrong word, gender. But diversity. I yeah, guess diversity it, in the team, yeah. sort of. Um, and just outsource that. That's not taking ownership of the the situation. So I think I try to get like involved in that. And then it, you got to look at sometimes the language that you're using. There are some, you know, there's studies that show the type of language in job ads and that sort of thing can attract or what's the opposite of attract? Oh, so deter. Some deter. Of the there we go. Yeah. Good words. Yeah. I'm smart. <laughs> um, deter women, like yeah. you know, a, a different type of language can do certain things. And then, like, ultimately, the challenge is that the size of the pool is too small. Like, we just need to get more women into tech. And so that's where, for example, I'm hoping to do a talk soon at my daughter's school about cybersecurity, but I'm also looking to try and work in some sort of put together a program, which is a bit of like build your own adventure to do with young girls, like at that end of primary school, beginning of high school stage yeah. where they can kind of, we can go in and go, all right, here's a few questions that's go down the path of this and it leads you into a data science cybersecurity lens or it leads you down a application development but trying to show them the like different gamify, types of yeah. gamify yeah. the concept of of moving into tech because a lot of studies show that women or girls have made up their mind about tech by the time they're 15 wow so they've already all of the bias that exists in society yeah. all of the bits and pieces that 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 sit there that's all made by the time so wow. switching at surprising. that point yeah so you kind of got to get in there and influence sooner so like i've had my daughter on 
she's done code camps and all that sort of thing. I try to make it interesting and fun rather than forcing it. But her favorite subject is maths, which just makes me so excited. I keep <laughs> I keep trying to encourage her to, hey, do you know data science is very math yeah, strong? Yeah. Like, and maybe yeah, you could have done that seat. part, yeah. you know? And I didn't realize this, and maybe I took it a little bit for granted, but I speak a reasonable amount, like when I can, and I'll do panels and all that sort of thing on diversity because me just being a female in tech, having had success, makes it seem more possible to others. Of course, it does. And that's something that it's, it's and difficult. And you're relatable and, you know, you can you can tell your story and yeah. how you got there. And with imposter syndrome, it's hard to say that because it sounds like I'm boasting. Not or at all. Like, why would people give a crap about what <laughs> I have done? Like, how would that influence anybody is like the internal dialogue. Yeah. But the feedback I've had is that's an important thing. So I try to do as much role modeling and I, whenever, like, I will always, if someone reaches out, like other companies from people who have just met me or whatever and say, hey, would you mind coming and talking to our tech, our females in our tech team? Always do that and those kinds of things because, yeah, want to do as much as I can with, again, it's a bit like parenting, with the amount of time that yeah, I have. So hard. how can I make the, the time that I spend doing that stuff quality time that has as much positive impact as yeah, possible? absolutely. Listen, Emma, we're That's up right. against time. Yep. <laughs> I've got so many of the questions that I didn't get a chance to ask, but you've been a great guest on the show. I just want to recognize you for your passion. Yeah, energy, you know, just bringing that kind of self-determination spirit to the table as well as that self-awareness and sharing that journey in terms of your mentors like Debbie and Angus and how they've helped you, your grandmother, you know, and now how you're passing that on to, to your kids and potentially their classmates if you go in and, and kind of do that talk as well. So it makes my job a lot easier when I've got a great guest. So thanks so much for joining me on Master and Data and I really appreciate you making the time. No, it's been my pleasure to be on the podcast. Really enjoyed it. And yes, I can talk a little, but hopefully you've got some nuggets in there that are, are helpful to your audience. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Emma. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to Mastering Data. Hit follow to get future episodes packed with valuable insights and tips for those looking to excel in the world of data. And if you enjoyed this episode, leave a review to help others find the podcast. 